Welcome to the Billingshurst Family Church Podcast. For more information or to support our work in Billingshurst and the surrounding areas, please visit billingshurstfamily.church. Good morning. Oh, I'm on. That's good. Nice and loud. Uh, okay. I'm very loud, actually. Um, welcome. We, we are going to be starting a new sermon series this morning. We're going to be looking at the book of Judges. And uh, we've made the choice to preach through the whole book. It's very tempting when you have a book like Judges to pick out the bits you like or the bits that are easier to preach on and there are some interesting bits coming up. Um, You know, we tend to focus on kind of those famous stories like Gideon and Samson and all, all of those that we're probably more familiar with, kind of we tend to, you know, use for... Um, teaching children as well and they're great but actually it's good to preach the whole word of God the whole counsel of God and as I've already said in my blog my blog post I was going to say my blog post um, it's not going to be an easy or straightforward book for us to look at but and there's a few reasons for that really for one thing a lot of what happens in the book a lot of what it, it talks about is a long way from the kind of lives that we live here now in 21st century Britain. Although in some ways it's quite similar as well. Um, But it does mean we can be tempted to think that it's not relevant for us uh, because it happened a long time ago in a culture that was very different from our own. And because of this, it, it takes a bit of time, it takes a bit of effort to really understand properly what's going on and then applying that to our own time and culture. But I would say that's well worth the effort because then we begin to uncover the challenges, the encouragements and the insights that the book contains. And another challenge we face is that historical narrative um, like this rarely interprets what is actually happening. Um, So it's hard for us to, to work out what's good in it, what's bad or what we're supposed to think. You know, is it really okay for someone to hide a sword down their leg and then stick it straight for a big fat old king? Craig's obviously saying it is. Um, You know, is it all right for someone to make a rash promise to God and end up sacrificing their only daughter? It's hard to see sometimes what lessons these kind of quite strange sometimes and, and often very violent stories have for us. And um, I think the answer to this, and actually it's just a helpful thing to think about whenever we look at God's word really, is that we have to let scripture interpret scripture. So we have to use the whole of God's word as we look at stories like this. And of course that carries a bit of a challenge. It's a challenge for all of us, no matter how well we think we know the Bible, to really build and have a broad enough understanding of God's word so that we can then use it like a plumb line to interpret correctly what we encounter in these stories. But that's one of the good things about Judges, because actually Judges and other biblical narratives like this are powerful and effective. They communicate well, they they help us to think because they're stories. And you've only got to think about the popularity of soaps, of dramas, of Netflix, of Amazon Prime, of all those kind of things that we look at. We love a good story. We love a well-told story. And um, stories like these, they don't spoon-feed us. They often are quite indirect. They often, the truth is often hidden or it's subtle. And they make us work. 
And the, and, but actually, I think somehow that's often very helpful, I find, because it helps me to remember the story. It helps me to remember the points. And it helps me to get, get what maybe um, the story is, try, is meant to tell us. And Jesus himself knew the power of a well-crafted story. He used lots of stories, obviously lots of parables for his teaching. And I think he knew that worked with people. And we're people, so hopefully it works with us as well. And we might have to dig a bit deeper, but it's really worth it for the truth it reveals. But I think even more importantly for us as believers, as followers of Jesus, we have to remember that these biblical stories, these narratives, are part of a bigger more important story. They're all part of God's story. And they tell us about a God. They tell us about a God. Actually, we've sung about this, about a God who has a plan to save us, about a God who is dealing with men. And it tells us what God's like. And it tells us how, particularly in this book, how surprisingly merciful God is to a people who really don't deserve it. Hence, the sermon series title that I picked, which is How Mercy Triumphs Over Judgment, which is taken from the book of James. Because ultimately, as with all of God's word, Judges is a book from God, and it's about God. And for that reason alone, it's worth exploring and seeing what it has to say to us. So I'm just going to pray before we start looking at the passage that we're going to look at this morning. So yeah, Father God, I want to thank you for your word. I want to thank you that your word is powerful and effective and every part of your word is for us. Every part of your word has something to say to us. Every part of your word has something to challenge us, to encourage us, to teach us and to help us follow you better than we have before. And Lord Jesus, I just want to pray that you will take what I've looked at. I want to pray that you take what's in this passage I pray that you open our hearts to what you have to say to us. And I pray you just guide us and be with us and help us, not just this week, but in the weeks ahead as we look at this book, that you'll really speak to us as a church and that we'll grab hold of all that you've got for us. And Lord, just looking forward to what you're going to do through us now as we look at your word. Thank you, Lord. Amen. Okay. So this morning we're going to look at the beginning of the book. We've got a couple of introductory sermons. Um, for myself, and then Craig's going to do the next one. And um, it's kind of, it's a change of season. It's a change of leadership. Um, the previous book, Joshua, uh, talks about a really a wave of conquest. As really, it's like a blitzkrieg. As the people of Israel, starting with Jericho, they go through the land and they kind of take the whole of, of the land. But now it becomes a bit more specific. They're moving on. They're now beginning to look at specific areas that have been allocated to specific tribes. There's the, the 12 tribes, the 12 sons of Jacob, and the people that descended from them. And they're starting to take specific cities and areas that have been allocated to them as tribes. So we're really starting with the background, and we're, the writer is telling us about this change. So we're looking at Joshua chapter 1, verse 1. Nice and easy. So after the death of Joshua... The people of Israel inquired of the Lord, Who shall go up first for us against the Canaanites to fight against them? And the Lord said, Judah shall go up. Behold, I have given the land into his hand. And Judah said to Simeon, his brother, Come up with me into the territory allotted to me, that we may fight against the Canaanites. And I likewise will go with you into the territory allotted to you. 
So Simeon went with him. So Judah is not the firstborn son of Jacob, but Jacob himself had a prophecy about um, Judah being the lead, being the, the leader of the brothers. And um, God seemed to recognize this, and I think it was you know, a God-given thing, and called Judah to go first. And then he asked the people of, the Judeans asked the people of Simeon. And the reason why they called each other brother is because Jacob had about four different wives. And Leah was the mother of both Judah and Simeon. And they seem to have become kind of quite close and did things together. So they, they go well. And, and we're going to read on. And things start really well, particularly with these guys, as Judah takes the lead. So we carry on in verse 4. So Judah went up, and the Lord gave the Canaanites and the Perizzites into their hand, and they defeated 10,000 of them at Bezek. They found Adonai Bezek at Bezek and fought against him and defend, defeated the Canaanites and the Perizzites. Adonai Bezek fled, but they pursued him and caught him and cut off his thumbs and his big toes. Nice. And Adonai Bezek said, Seventy kings with their thumbs and their big toes cut off used to pick up scraps under my table. As I have done, so God has repaid me. And they brought him to Jerusalem, and he died there. And the men of Judah fought against Jerusalem. They captured it, and they struck it down with the edge of their sword and set the city on fire. And afterwards, the men of Judah went down to fight against the Canaanites who lived in the hill country, in the Negeb and the lowland. And Judah went against the Canaanites who lived in Hebron. Now the name of Hebron was fully Kiriath Arba. And they defeated Sheshai and Ammon and Talmai. And from there they went against the inhabitants of Debir. And the name of Debir was formerly Kiriath Sepher. And Caleb said, He who attacks Kiriath Sepher and captures it, I will give him Akshar, my daughter, for a wife. And Othniel, the son of Kizad, Caleb's younger brother, captured it. And he gave him Aksar, his daughter, for a wife. And when she came to him, she urged him to ask her father for a field. And she dismounted from her donkey, and Caleb said to her, What do you want? And she said to him, Give me a blessing. Since you've set me in the land of the Negeb, give me also springs of water. And Caleb gave her the upper springs and the lower springs. And the descendants of the Kenite, Joseph's father-in-law, went up with the people of Judah from the city of Palms, that's Jericho, into the wilderness of Judah, which lies in the Negev near Arad. And they went and settled with the people. And Judah went with Simon, his brother, and they defeated the Canaanites who inhabited Zephar and devoted it to destruction. So the name of the city was called Hormah. Judah also captured Gaza with its territory, and Ashkelon with its territory, and Ekron with its territory. And the Lord was with Judah, and he took possession of the hill country. But he could not drive out the inhabitants of the plain because they had chariots of iron. And Hebron was given to Caleb, as Moses had said. And he drove out from it the three sons of Anak. So Judah's conquest starts with quite a big battle. And they, there's this kind of gory story, this king who defeated 70 other kings. He's very cruel and he cut off their thumbs and big toes. And most of the commentators say this is so they couldn't. It's quite hard to pick up a sword if you haven't got a thumb. So basically that was it. I'm not sure about the toe bit, but anyway. Um, 
that's a bit weird. But there's kind of this poetic justice, isn't there, that even he recognised that he'd been so cruel and so harsh to these men. He could have just defeated them, but he did all that, that the same thing happened to them. And we never read about Judah or anybody else doing that ever again. And then we have this other bit. We've got more strange stories. Caleb giving his daughter to his younger brother. Now, he may not have been a full brother. He may not have even been a brother. The commentators vary on what they think about that. He might have been a nephew. He might have been somebody from the same tribe. Because the word brother can be a bit wider than just your literal brother. Um, so we're not sure about that. But I, think, I find it quite interesting that actually seems to be... We know about Caleb... We know about his boldness, being one of the few spies that did not feel fearful about going into the promised land. And he was, it was only him and Joshua who survived from that generation and went into the promised land. And she seems to be like him. She seems to be quite bold. And she makes sure that she gets some water for her town because it was in the middle of the desert as well. And um, it, Judah seem to do what God wants. They take the land, they get rid of the people there, they do all the right things. There's a little bit of trouble in the plains because the people had chariots, but um, other than that, it seems to go really well. But then we read on, and um, it, does, it really starts to go from bad to worse with the other tribes, as we look at really a kind of incomplete con- conquest. And it, it might seem like a long list, but there's a reason for this passage being there, which I'll, I'll bring out later. So, we start at verse 21. But the people of Benjamin did not drive out the Jebusites who lived in Jerusalem. So the Jebusites have lived with the people of Benjamin in Jerusalem to this day. And the house of Joseph also went up against Bethel. And the Lord was with them. And the house of Joseph scouted out Bethel. Now the name of the city was formerly Luz. And the spies saw a man coming out of the city and they said to him, Please show us the way into the city and we will deal kindly with you. And he showed them the way into the city. And they struck the city with the edge of the sword. But they let the man and all his family go. And the man went to the land of the Hittites and built a city and called its name Luz. And that is its name to this day. And then Manasseh did not drive out the inhabitants of Beth and its villages, or Tanash and its villages, or the inhabitants of Dor and its villages, or the inhabitants of Iblim and its villages, or the inhabitants of Megigo and its villages. For the Canaanites persisted in dwelling in that land. And when Israel grew strong, they put the Canaanites to forced labour, but did not drive them out completely. And Ephraim did not drive out the Canaanites who lived in Giza. So the Canaanites lived in Giza among them. Zebulun did not drive out the inhabitants of Kitron or the inhabitants of Naalol. So the Canaanites lived among them but became subject to forced labour. Asher did not drive out the inhabitants of Acho, or the inhabitants of Sidon, or of Ahlab, or of Aksib, or of Hebla, or of Afik, or of Rehob. So the Asherites lived among the Canaanites, the inhabitants of the land, for they did not drive them out. Naphtali did not drive out the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh, or the inhabitants of Beth Anath. So they lived among the Canaanites, the inhabitants of the land, Nevertheless, the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh and of Beth Shenaf became subject to forced labour for them. The Amorites pressed the people of Dan back into the hill country, for they did not allow them to come down to the plain. The Amorites persisted in dwelling in Mount Herez, in Ajalon, and in Shablim. But the hand of the house of Joseph rested heavily on them, 
and they became subject to forced labour. And the border of the Ammonites ran from the descent of Akarim from Selah and upwards. So there's one bit of success there. It seemed to go well for Joshua, uh, not Joshua, sorry, Joseph in Bethel. But other than that, there's a real pattern. And it's conquest, but without getting rid of the people that live there, going against what God had told them to do. And then we find out that God was not happy about this, and he makes this very clear. And we're going to read on, we're just going to read a few verses in chapter 2. So we're going to start in verse, chapter 2, verse 1. So now the angel of the Lord went up from Gigal to Bochim, and he said, I brought you up from Egypt and brought you into the land that I swore to give to your fathers. I said, I will never break my covenant with you, and you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall break down their altars, but you have not obeyed my voice. What is this you have done? So now I say, I will not drive them out before you, but they shall become thorns in your side, and their gods shall be a snare to you. So unfortunately for the tribes, God wasn't happy. He wasn't happy with their half-heartedness. He'd given them a job to do. He asked them to conquer the land and drive out the people doing there. Sorry, living there. But while doing part of what God had told them to do, conquering the towns and cities, they didn't finish the job. They didn't drive out the people there. And because of this, they were going to lose God's support. And God would allow their enemies to stay and tempt them to further disobedience. And we need to provide a bit of context there, because this can seem quite harsh. Um, and why did God want these people to be removed out? And uh, it's quite interesting, actually, because Abraham, and we're probably talking 500 years before this, had been spoken to by God about the future of the people that were going to be descended from him. And then in Genesis 15, and really kind of verse 13 to 16, he told them, he told, God told Abraham how he would take his descendants out of the land for 400 years because they needed to wait for the sins of the Amorites to go to its, the worst heights, or the depths maybe. And um, you kind of get a sense of this, that God was kind of protecting them, because at this point, they were just a large extended family. Um, just a few, you know, 100 individuals, or 70, 80, 90 individuals. And they were still relatively small. And it was kind of, God wasn't going to bring them back until they were a nation, until they were kind of big enough and strong enough to deal with the wicked people there. And um, we can read in Leviticus 18, verses 6 to 30, and Deuteronomy 18, 9 to 14, some of the sins of the Amorites. They included things like incest, child sacrifice, homosexuality, bestiality, and a long list of occult practices. Because the thing was, they were not innocent people. They were just not, just, not just people in the way. They were wicked people, and they were really too far gone, and they were really quite cruel and uh, to themselves and to other people as well. And it just wasn't wise for the people of Israel to do this, to compromise and leave them behind. I think it was kind of easier in the short term. It was going to be hard work to get rid of them. You know, conquering the territory was one thing, but actually then getting these people to actually leave, that was much harder. And I guess we've seen that in a few sort of recent events. Winning military battles is a great easy, but actually then dealing with the aftermath is much harder. And, um, but it wasn't going to be good for them because of the influence of these people. And um, 
It wasn't so much a judgment, although there was a kind of a judgment there because they hadn't done what God had done. It was more about consequence. It was more about facing the fact that they'd made this choice and this is what was going to happen to them. And that God wasn't, wasn't really going to help them in quite the same way that he was. And in fact, when we look at the rest of Judges, really, as we see the various oppressions, the various subjugations that they suffered, you can kind of look back at what we're reading about today and see that this is a consequence of that choice that they made. And of course, once they'd realised what they had done, it had a big impact on them. And they, were, you know, they felt really sorry and sad about what they'd done. Well, sort of, anyway. And we can read that. The last couple of verses we're going to read is verses 4 or 5, what I've kind of called regret or repentance. So as soon as the angel of the Lord spoke these words to all the people of Israel, the people lifted up their voices and wept. And they called the name of that place Bokim. And they sacrificed there to the Lord. So we see this very immediate response. We see wailing, weeping, deep emotion. And we see them kind of going, well, we need to sort something out with God. So they, they sacrifice to God. And um, I don't know about you, but I think we always feel bad when we get caught out, when we've done something wrong, don't we? We all feel sorry. And, um, but I think the big question here is, did this make a difference? Had anything changed? Had they truly repented? Or was this simply regret? And... Um, I think it's difficult for us at this point to know that. But I think if we look at the rest of Judges and we look at what happened afterwards, I think you can probably fairly say that in a way, this was just regret. This was just sadness at kind of, oh, we've done this wrong, but also kind of a regret about what this meant for them. And I think in a way that probably they hadn't really repented of what they've done because the cycle seemed to carry on. And uh, I guess when we look at a story like this, we then have to say, what is the relevance for us today? Does this story of a people who didn't complete the task they were given to do relevant to us today in our completely different context and culture? And I would say yes. Now, we haven't been called to take ground and get rid of people like they have. It's slightly, slightly different for us, isn't it? We have been called to take ground and bring people in. We've got a different mission, a different call. It's the one that Jesus gave to his first disciples, the Great Commission, just before he went back to the Father to go and make disciples. And really, everything that we do as believers, that we do as a church, has to be measured by whether it fits in with that. But also, I think we share something else with them as well. Because we are a called people. We are a chosen people. We're a people set apart to be different. We're people who then need to make choices to do whatever God asked of us, wherever that might cost. We need to live in the way that God has called us to live. We need to follow the commands and that call that he's given to us. And that might mean the, the harder path rather than you know, doing the easy path. And um, for us too, if we don't do what God wants of us, there are consequences. It's a slightly different situation because... We're not looking at the, kind, the same kind of judgment. But we are looking at the consequences of our choice that maybe 
we will miss out on seeing what God achieves through our obedience. Maybe we will miss out on blessings and also other people might miss out on them as much. And I think the obvious mistake that they made was that they compromised. And um, they kind of did what God wanted, but when it got too hard, when it got too difficult, when it got too painful, they backed off and they didn't finish. And I guess that was easier at the time, but in the end, they paid the, they paid the price, didn't they? Because the people they left behind ended up drawing them into things that they shouldn't have done. Because they, they were living amongst them. They just couldn't avoid it. And it had that kind of impact on them. And um, that's, that's the problem with compromise, isn't it? Because often it's, it's a kind of small thing sometimes, but it can feel, oh, that won't matter. That won't have, a, that won't have an effect on us. But actually the problem is, in the end, it does. And it does a lot of damage. And it often affects other people, not just us. And when we look at the Israelites, it took them a long time to, to learn this lesson. Probably generations. I mean, the book of Judges, they probably never really got it. In fact, the book of Judges has a really sad ending. It's kind of just people were doing their own thing. And... Um, it probably wasn't really until the time of David when they really got it and they really started trusting God and doing what God wanted. And uh, that's when they realised that that was the right thing to do. And actually, they, they really thrived. They really did well as a nation. Because when you're in the will of God, it doesn't mean you have an easy life, but it does mean you get the things that God wants to give you and the blessings that he wants to give you. But I think what, what struck me, when I, when I look through the whole book of Judges, when you read the whole book of Judges, when you look at all the different stories, is God's incredible mercy. And um, the people that we talk about in... I don't know... I always get my head around why they're called judges, because they don't actually do a lot of judging. Um, I, I always like to call them deliverers. Um, I guess they were judges because people went to them to hear the judgment of God. But... Um, it's very interesting because often God acted without true repentance. Often they cried out to God, please rescue us from what was happening. You know, please save us from these people that are oppressing us. But actually God didn't wait for them to repent. God sent them a deliverer. God sent them a judge despite that. His mercy was incredible. And, um, you know, again and again, we read, they didn't learn their lesson. Again and again, they slipped away, they compromised, and then they suffered the consequence of that. And then God had to send another judge. And I think that is really relevant to us. Because in the same way, we have been saved, haven't we, by our ultimate judge, and that's Jesus. And um, there's, there's nothing in that about the fact that we've deserved it or earned it. There's nothing that we have done that means we should receive that. It is all about his mercy. It's all about his grace, isn't it? And um, when we look at a story like this, how do we respond to it? Do we look at the Israelites and go, oh, those silly Israelites, they always get it wrong. What, what's the mistake there? We're just the same as them. Do we just say, don't compromise like them? You know, if you obey God, everything will be all right. No, that's not what we do. 
at least not to start with. We need to start at the mercy of God. We need to remember that our salvation, our rescue, is because all what the ultimate judge did for us when he went to the cross. That it has nothing to do with us and what we can do. We start with mercy. We focus on the grace of God. The fact that we are allowed to get away with our disobedience and our, our rebellion and our compromise because Jesus paid the price for that on the cross and we can walk free. And we don't have to face the consequences, even though we don't deserve it. You see, we're just like them. We're no different. We're no better than them. We need a judge, a deliverer sent from God, just as much as they did. You see, this story is not there for us to point the finger at them and say, don't be like them and make their mistakes. Because we're the same as them. I know I am anyway. You lot are great, but I'm not. And uh, we all make the same mistakes. You know, we even do it after we've been saved, don't we? Sadly, we don't always learn those lessons. See, what the point of this story is that we need a deliverer and that we cannot save ourselves and that we have to recognise that salvation only comes through God's mercy to us. And we can only learn to be different. We can only learn to avoid these mistakes on the good of what Jesus has done for us. And what he's already done for us. What he did for us on the cross. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Jeff. You are my, you're brilliant. Um, once we get the mercy of God, and that anything else we need is based on that, then we, can, then we can learn the lesson. Then we can move on and learn what this story has to say to us. And um, a, lot, you know, a lot of what Jesus calls us to do is hard. It's difficult. I wish I could say it gets easier, but it doesn't. It requires sacrifice. Sometimes it means missing out. It can cost us. We have to use our, you know, it draws up our energy, our time, our resources, our money, all that we have. It's a lot easier to back off and settle for the easy life. But this, this story tells us, and our experience as followers of Jesus tells us that settling for second best has a consequence both to us and the sort of people that we become. And it also affects those around us who then miss out on the blessings that we could have helped them enjoy. It's that there's a warning and an encouragement in this story. The warning is to avoid compromising our faith. But also, positively, there's an encouragement that when we obey, we can reap the, blessing that, that, sorry, the blessings my teeth aren't in, that that brings. You know, think of an example, really. I, I, I didn't want to point the finger at anyone or even share one of my examples, but think about being honest. We're called to be honest, aren't we? We're called to be people of the truth. And um, that's great until you do something wrong or you make a mistake or you have to say sorry. And, uh, you know, admitting that. Think of the times when we've realised we've done something wrong and nobody else knows. It's a lot easier to hide it, isn't it? It's a lot easier not to say. I'm always tempted to do that. And yet we know that although it's painful for us to fess up and say we've got it wrong, actually it does us good. Because if we get caught out later, we're going to look bad, aren't we? And the consequences are going to be much worse. And this is an example, a very simple example, of 
the problem of compromise and the benefit of obedience. And um, this is just a small example, kind of a trivial example, really, of how doing what God wants while hard is always for the best. And I wonder, when we look at this story, what would have happened if they'd done what God had wanted? My guess is we wouldn't be preaching on the book of Judges this morning because it wouldn't exist. And, um, and I think in a way, for us as Christians, as believers in Jesus, the stakes are even higher because our obedience is not just about us. And in fact, it was the same for them, really, because it's also about how we can then bless others as we do what God wants. And I just started thinking about, not so much about myself, actually, but about us as a church, that actually... Just imagine what it's like to be part of a church where we are full of people who who know God's mercy, where we are serious and devoted to doing what God has called us to do and take ground for him. Just imagine what it's like to be part of a church where people can find out about his mercy, where people are unwilling to compromise. And uh, that's a challenge for all of us, isn't it? I'm not saying we don't do it, but just imagine what it's like if we are really... You know, just doing that more and more. That we're, you know, we're just so devoted to Jesus and wanting to see people come in and enjoy that with us too. Where we refuse to compromise. It doesn't matter what I would be like if I took that seriously. If I didn't compromise and take the easy path. If I, if I dared to be different around us. Just imagine the blessings that God can bring through that. This is not... These things are not in the Bible to make us feel bad about ourselves, are they? They're to encourage us. They're to encourage us to see the difference that these, these choices make. That as we make a choice to, be, to, to not give up on God, to press through, to persevere when it's hard and when it's difficult. That's why it's good to hear stories where actually we don't feel great, but we still know God's love. We still know his care. Because actually, that's the kind of people we want to be, isn't it? That's, that's why this book is written. And I think there's lots of lessons that we're going to learn through that. And I'm really encouraged with that. So it's not to feel bad. It's to feel challenged, yes. But to feel encouraged that actually God can do this through us. That actually God, we can do great things when we actually obey him and do what he wants. And the, and the grace of God is that even when we get it wrong, his mercy still flows. He still uses us. His mercy still flows in our life because that's the kind of God he is. So let's pray. Yeah, Father God, I want to thank you for stories like this that are not put in your word to make us feel bad, but are put in your word to show us what you're like, to show us your incredible mercy, to show us your incredible love, that you just keep pouring out your mercy, you keep pouring out your love even when we mess up, even when we get it wrong. And that actually, we're just like them. But Lord, we still have you, our amazing God. And you do amazing things through us. So Lord, I pray, Lord, if there's anything in there that, that has challenged anyone, if there's anything in there where we need to change, Lord, I pray you just give us the grace and to change, to be different. But Lord, yeah, I look forward to what you're going to speak to us through these, um, these passages. And Lord, we want to be your people. We want to be people that don't compromise. We want to be people that press into all that you have for us. And Lord, we want to be a people that, that enjoy facing up to the challenges you bring and the things you're going to do through us. And Lord, yeah, just speak to us about what these are. 
And uh, Lord, I know I need to hear that. And Lord, I pray you bless each of us, Lord, as we, as we continue to hear what you have to say to us. Thank you, Lord. Amen. I was going to ask the band to come up, but they're really good. They're already here. Um, we're going to take communion now. And there's a couple of things I just want to... Sorry, I'm in the way. And um, I just want to make sure that we keep the focus on Jesus as we take communion. On, communion is a great way to remember what Jesus did for us on the cross. And he is the best example. He's the best example of someone who did not compromise. The reason we are here, the reason we are saved, is because he would not compromise on what God had called him to do. And he obeyed him. He took the hard path. And it wasn't easy for him. We know that. We know it wasn't easy. And when you look at that, how can you not respond in gratitude, in worship and awe? And also, I want to encourage you, that the Holy Spirit's here. He's here to move amongst us. If you need help to take the challenge of following him and doing the hard stuff, he's here. Yet the challenge is hard. It's hard to love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your mind and all your strength. I don't find it easy. But the grace of God is here. The Holy Spirit's here. So just remember, we're a called people. And that's what we celebrate as well. Communion is not an individual thing. It's a thing we do together. I love what Mick said last week about the body of Christ. And uh, let's enjoy that now.